right. Well, Magdalene, it is a privilege and pleasure to have you on this channel, co-hosted by Matthew Hoffman from International Artistic Development and myself, Emma Farkerson, aka The Forest Weaver. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Matthew. Really nice to be here. <laughs> You're joining us live from um, the, the lounge. We are cozy and comfortable. It's very, very rainy. I don't know about what, what it is like your side. What's the weather like? It's, uh, it's pretty chilly, but it's not as chilly probably as uh, um, anywhere in KwaZulu-Natal or in Gauteng at the moment. Yes. So, um, Particularly think... in Hilton, we live in a mist belt. So. Uh, imagine how cold it is there. No, it's not as cold, but it is definitely winter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Matthew, I don't know if you want to um, introduce yourself and your podcast and what you're about. Okay. So, um, I think most people on the channel already know. Uh, I see we've actually got quite a few of the previous um, podcast guests we had. So, international artistic development is something that I started at the beginning of lockdown, which was basically um, a way to help musicians initially in South Africa. Uh, find a place online essentially and uh, help them find students and we've broadened the horizons a bit uh, to an international audience um, and we've also opened our doors essentially to other forms of art um, so for instance uh, now I'm speaking to a an English teacher to actually get involved at some point um, because I, I find more as I cover music sometimes um, language plays a huge role in uh, the traditional music around the world. All right, so that's that's yeah. the basics of international artistic. Great, great. And um, Magdalene, if you would um, mind just telling telling us and telling the audience a little bit about yourself, um, just introducing who you are, what you do, and what hats you've worn, and and what hat you're currently now uh, South Africa and also producer and I'm currently the artistic director of Cape Town Opera um, and uh, yeah hats I've worn many many a hat <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll be touching on those uh, quite extensively you yeah. have a very musically diverse life <laughs> That's correct, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on board. And without further ado, we're going to get into some very interesting conversations. So Ooh. thank you, everybody, for listening in. And we're going to fire away. So if you had to think of a word, I'm going to start with something interesting. If you had, a, if you had to think of a word that would define your childhood, one word, mm -hmm. what would it be? My childhood. Hmm. Um, well, the one thing that pops up is entrepreneurship. <laughs> I was always trying to make things to sell, but I suppose creativity also. Um, I was a very creative child, so I, I didn't really play outside much. I just played inside and made stuff and thought stuff up and created that what was... kind of things did you make to sell? <laughs> well, I started with pom-poms when I was five. I had a 
pom-pom stand, which I sold to random people passing by. This was the early 1980s, so <laughs> it wasn't as dangerous to stand outside alone as a child in the road. Um, uh, and then later I sold song. So I, um, I was in a, in a really nice children's choir, um, the Pretoria's children's choir, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and um, with a couple of my friends, we went door to door at Christmas time and we just did carols. So we rang people's bells and we did carols and asked for money. And um, the one, the one holiday, we actually made a thousand rand, which we split. Wow. It's really cool. Yeah, it was quite a lot of money. Jeepers. I bet, the, I bet that filled some, some childhood pipe dreams of yours, enabled you to purchase some, some dream items. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I mean, back then it wasn't really for me about the money, but the, that feeling of um, being able to, you know, get paid for, for what you're doing, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, that entrepreneurial spirit, um, as someone who has worked for you, fun fact in the past, um, <laughs> it's certainly something that's carried through into your, your adult um, career, or shall we say careers. So it's <laughs> delightful that you've had that, that consistent entrepreneurial spirit. I can just imagine a little Magdalene uh, <laughs> when the teachers ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? An entrepreneur. Actually, when, when I got asked that question in standard one, my, my answer was, Five things, uh, mm. an, an opera singer, an actress, an artist, uh, a poet and something else. I can't, re I can't even remember, but it was distinctly five things. So um, sure. I've covered some of them. Five things within that creative space. <laughs> it's interesting that, you, that you, know, you knew from such an early age. I suppose it's, we always have that mixed bag. We are either very clear of where, what kind of field, not necessarily specifically what line within that field. But it's rare for a child to, to know that. So that's really, really cool. Yeah, I was kind of fed that I will be an opera singer from quite a young age. So I don't think I really had much of it. No, I, I suppose I always had a choice, but I <laughs> came from a very creative family and lots of people told me I had a good voice and that I should become an opera singer. So it was kind of always the trajectory that I was on in any, in any case. Hmm. And when you when you had music, opera music played for you, did you did you enjoy it as a child, or did you find it painful to the ear? Oh, I definitely never found it painful. I mean, I um I grew up with Mozart and Vivaldi. I mean, more instrumental music really, but we listened to a lot of Mozart. And my dad and I had a, a gag where he would sing the upper part of the of the Queen of the Night, and I would make up a bass line. Um, <laughs> kind of a one of our our party tricks um and yeah but I, I i mean i enjoyed opera it wasn't like my my parents weren't really opera fundies or anything but they mm. they lived in holland for a little bit and joined choirs and my mom played um recorder like all the recorders in baroque groups and that kind of thing so instrumental music was very much their their vibe fabulous mm. i ask because um I myself as an opera singer, opera was a late love for me. It was something I was immersed in. So I had parents with two very different music tastes. So I had mum on the classical spectrum with her, her classical music, um, her instrumental, her orchestras, and of, of course her opera. And then I had dad with his Van Halen and his blues and jazz. <laughs> so I always knew that music was going to be a thing, but, but opera itself was a very late love. Um, wow. and, and I actually, one of the very first concerts that I did 
um, was opera found on the Gra then Grahamstown National Arts Festival. And it was about just talking about my journey to starting to fall in love with opera late. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, I know I've come across a lot of musicians where it's either an immediate love or it's one that, ha that happens over time. Yeah, interesting. Right. <laughs> so Matthew is going oh, to field the next question, which brings us to the many hats that you have worn in life. Mm -hmm. Right. So violinist, opera singer, producer, arts administrator, mother, childhood music educator, project manager, and now artistic director. Uh, you've led a very diverse musical life. What led you down those paths? Um, well, I mean, for me, it was never a clear so somehow my um, journey um, as a professional musician was never a very clear path because I was always kind of going where life was taking me. So um, I, after studying, I went and lived uh, abroad for, for a little bit and I, I didn't get accepted into the, the school that I wanted to get accepted into. Um, and uh, I came back to kind of renew a visa and see where I want to go next. And um, in that time, I um, did an audition for the Cape Town Opera Studio at that time. It's now called the Cape Town Young Artist Program. And I got accepted. And so that was kind of, you know, just where I went because I was accepted and was quite presti prestigious. So I spent two years there. Um, past that, I suddenly found myself um, as a freelancer with very little skills. So I just went on to the next audition that I could find, which was um, for Sterling EQ. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up playing for them uh, electric violin for a year because it was really good money. And um, it was kind of a steady income. Um, saw the world, learned a lot about um, about what I want to do and what I don't want to do. and learned a lot about performance and um, uh, met a lot of really cool musicians. Um, and then I, I, in my, my head, I started forming what I really wanted to do, which, which was always more creating than performing. Um, and then I suppose I just, uh, then, then I got the role in Phantom, which was another year that I kind of spent just doing that. Well, never just doing that, but um, in that time I started my production company to be able to, to, to be able to do my own productions. Um, this is Bibliotheque Productions. This, was, this is Bibliotheque Productions. Um, that was 2010. And then, yeah, I got, you know, it, it just kind of the one thing kind of led into the next. Um, you know, when, when, I had my, when I had my first child, I, I realized that there wasn't really great programming for classical music. So I started Little Maestros and that's kind of how I got into um, what you're referring to there as childhood, early childhood? Yeah, yeah, childhood music education. Um, that was kind of the start of that, which then, you know, seven, eight years on is now Clever Classical Kids, which is the, uh, I mean, you know about this program, but it's a, a program that I wrote for, for um, ages zero to seven as a um, kind of a curriculum, which maybe you don't even know about this, but now we actually... Um, busy rolling it out to schools as a as a full-on curriculum for for early um for early years so it, i don't know it always for me things are it, it's never like a uh okay i've done this i'm done with that 
yes. it's always kind of a um, trajectory to something else. So, I mean, I could have just left Little Maestros and stopped it, but mm -hmm. I, I chose to develop it into something further. Yeah. It's the same with Bibliotheque Productions. I, I kind of used it as a vehicle to be able to direct because I wasn't getting the, I would have never gotten the chances to direct stuff if I didn't create it myself. So I knew that I had to create my own production house, find my own money, start small, um, and kind of build it that way. So I see, I see my career as just, I don't know, just a lot of building blocks coming together to hopefully eventually build a very colorful and happy wall. Yes, Guildhall coins the phrase a portfolio career where sometimes you're focusing more on one thing than you are on another, but you're always vacillating. And yeah. I guess um, what makes you so so unique is that you have, have done so many things um, and, you, and you continue to, to bring them back and, and dance. It's, it's almost like your, your life is an, is an entire creative project in and of itself. So it's, it's really great and really inspiring because I suppose for... For students and um, and listeners listening in, we're moving very rapidly uh, into a world where we can't just be one thing. Um, we need to be fluid and flexible, and it's great to have you on the platform to show people how how you're doing that. Thanks. Well, I mean that's a that's a big compliment, but I I do believe in multi diversity and um, definitely being very diverse in what you do and how you apply yourself as an artist. I, I think mm. it's essential. Yes, definitely. All right, Matthew, we've got one more. I think just to comment on that as well, mm. um, because I've also bounced around quite a bit. Mm. And I think it's, it's an important point for uh, maybe younger musicians, well, well in any field really, because um, you always aim for something kind of jump on the path but life has a way of bouncing you around mm. and as you kind of bouncing around it, it's actually not such a bad thing because you start discovering uh building skills i know my um right out of university i got thrown into didn't want to teach i wanted to go into performance and i started teaching junior uh section in the primary school and and the following year, I was thrown immediately into HOD position um, and didn't have any other musicians under me. I wear all the hats in school. <laughs> and as painful as it was, it built so many skills because I had to do so many different things. And it is probably one of the things that has contributed to me being now really just jump on arranging something. Uh, my ear has developed so listen to something and pick it up fast whereas university was one of my weaknesses yeah yes. yeah it's interesting yeah. that the the ways in which we're challenged are often our best our best teacher yeah yes. i mean i remember my first year out of university very quickly um i did seven jobs so it was au pair arts administrator um i even did a yoga instructing vocal coach performer oh. I can't remember what the other two were. House sitting and pet sitting. I think. Good. That's, that's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Uh, okay, on to the next. So where did you train as a musician and singer and how did uh, this inform your style and philosophy 
towards the craft? Um, so I uh, was picked up by a teacher at quite a young age. Uh, I think I was about 14 um, in Pretoria. She was uh, back in the 70s. Uh, she was quite a, a well-known soprano, Bets Buita, so I studied with her. It was all quite gentle, and I, I think that she was a great um, starting vocal teacher, starter vocal teacher, uh, just because she didn't really... She didn't try to teach technique as such, and and that I really agree with uh, because the voice really um, only develops from from it, it only really matures from eighteen or nineteen, depending on on you know your specific person. Um, but uh, that was a really great start, and I did lots of very interesting repertoire, and she she pushed me in a, in musically, uh, which was really great. Um, at the same time, I had a, um, I, I, I played the violin. That was on a far higher level than, than my singing at the time. Um, and there I also had a really, really great teacher, Annemarie Swanepoel. And I also played the bassoon um, uh, with a, a wonderful full teacher. He's passed away since. Uh, I played in lots of orchestras. I played in National Youth Orchestra. I played in the what was then the TED Orchestra. I don't know what it's called now. Um, I sang in the National Youth Choir, um, and I sang in. Uh, I was in pro arte in art school, so I sang in a vocal group there. So, so like lots of music, really. Um, and uh, then I went on to studying violin with Santa Hofmeier for a year, um, and uh, then went on. That was my one year in. Uh, university in in Pretoria, and then I moved over to Cape Town, where I studied with. Uh, I switched over to viola, and I studied with first Jurgen Schwittering, who was a great teacher, and then with Farida Bakarova. So my string teachers were all excellent teachers, um, even with the transitioning from instrument. Um, and with singing, I then switched to um, to study with Nelly de Toy, who she was kind of the reason I came to to Cape Town. Um, even though she was in Salimbosh, so I was driving through twice a week to her. She was an absolutely incredible teacher. She was by far one of the most influential people in my life. Um, uh, I have uh, great respect and admiration for the way that she taught me. And um, I was the kind of student who recorded every lesson and re-listened to it through the week and um, wrote everything down that she taught me. Um, mm. And that's basically the reason that I can teach today is because I was so interested in what she was saying and um, because I was really paying attention, I can actually now um, transpose that onto other people. Uh, and um, I never thought that I would enjoy teaching, but uh, in, in lockdown I was kind of thrown into it uh, more, you know, just as a means of, you know, having an income. And I really, really started enjoying it. And I just basically tapped into what she had taught me and it worked. So, so yeah, great teachers all around. You touched earlier on um, an institution that you, you applied to and, and you didn't get into. And it's, it's so great that you, you mention the importance of your choice of teacher, not just the institution. I think so often young artists get so fixated on a place and the opportunities that that place presents itself as as being able to offer, um, but they they forget to also 
research the teachers and and select them and that just because you don't get into the place that you was your number one and you don't want uh, you that you wanted to get into doesn't mean that other teachers elsewhere can't take you places absolutely and it's the same i mean <clears throat> I, I i that i was mentioning that earlier i i then got offered when i didn't get into the the this institution um that I wanted to really get into, which was like one of the top ones. I got offered a um, a, a, a lower kind of a, like a, a BMAS to redo my BMAS at, at one of the also very good um, international schools. But I just, I just didn't see why I should go and after five years of studying music, study another BMAS just to be at a famous school. And that's mm. why I came back to just kind of see, you know, where, where I want to be. And luckily, uh, kind of life chose for me which yeah. was hand. but it's true I mean there are great teachers all around and um, you know you can get a, a great teacher in all all pockets of the world um, where perhaps there isn't as much prestige or money or whatever um, but you're still going to get a good e education um, so absolutely uh, I mean good teachers are just uh, that's kind of the, the reason I didn't want to teach um, before I started teaching because I was so scared of being a bad teacher uh, <laughs> that you you end up teaching people the wrong thing that mm. uh, that I, I just kind of left it to to other people so but but we in South Africa we need good teachers that's yeah. that is something that we actually really do need especially vocal teachers we don't have enough good vocal teachers mm. they all leave I, I know what you mean in terms of being nervous about um teaching I when I came out of uh, university I taught some I would teach beginners but um, I hesitated to teach really advanced students until I felt like I knew a little bit more about what I was talking about um, mm. and I must say in the time of COVID being a teacher has been one of the greatest roles that I have um, performed as an aspiring professional opera singer I'm still mm. in in the baby zone in in that regard um but yeah, it's it the the teaching is can be incredibly fulfilling, um, and I, I don't know about you, but I've found that my voice got very very fit through a lot of teaching and and as you say, teaching the right way. Mm. Uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, um, I I always uh, think I'm fittest when I'm performing a lot. Uh, mm. with, with teaching, especially when you're teaching different fucks, I I tend to sing in their register. So when I'm teaching men, it's not very helpful because it's in my absolute lowest register, and I have a freakishly lower lower register. But uh, I, I I also try not to demonstrate too much when I'm teaching because I want my students to find their own voice. But I suppose everyone has their has their own style, and um, my voice gets tired when I talk a lot. So that's that's not great, but um, mm. One, yeah, one has to kind of look at that as well and talk yeah, in the right. When we learn, my vocal supervisor told me when I started with a, a boys' school locally here. She said, "You better breathe properly when you speak, not just when you sing, because <laughs> otherwise you really do get tired." Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, let's talk a little bit about why you went into opera and what your favorite role was within that in terms of performing let's focus on that first do you mean role as in a role in an opera yeah yeah a character mm. uh, like I said earlier opera was kind of chosen for me um 
I mean, luckily it was chosen for me because I happened to really love it. Uh, but I would say that my, my love for opera really started when I was performing it. Mm. It was really when I started getting roles that I started absolutely loving it. I love performing. I love embodying a role. Um, I do, however, love creating a role <laughs> above performing <laughs> it. But um, that's definitely where, where the love started. And um, one of my favorite roles were actually one that I created myself. Um, well, not entirely, but I, I did a, a, I suppose you can call it a pastiche uh, called Vansen, which was a, a show that we did uh, around the country at a couple of arts festivals directed by Jakub Bauer. And it's a, um, a show that I put together of mad scenes. Uh, so mm. five mad scenes from different operas that was choreographed and sung. Um, so I was the only singer on stage. I had one dancer with me, but it was um, physically incredibly taxing and um, obviously vocally very demanding because I sang five mad scenes back to back with the small screen that one um, on the what was it? it? It was with Bibliotheque. It was when you did that whole production line where you involved a lot of people and you did a screening where that was one of your contributions to the, the offering. Am I thinking correctly? Because I swear I saw it. Could be, yeah. It could yeah. be. When you involved was... all those musicians like uh, Magda de Vries and... Um... No, no, that was something different. Okay. Um, yeah. There was, no, a, there was something where you screened it. Mm, I, I mean, I, uh, I can't remember, but, um, but, but that was definitely, I think, because it was mentally and physically and vocally exceptionally challenging, I think that was um, one of my favorite productions so far. Even, mm. even though, I mean, I think Lucia de Lammermoor is one of my favorite roles ever in an opera because she's a very complicated character and she has a very fabulously tragic and mad <laughs> end which is quite cool i was for women for, for women in music and women in opera it, it provides such an opportunity for complex characterization i think that's one of the reasons i fell in love with opera yeah okay yeah yeah was the yeah. complexity of the roles that it affords particularly women absolutely absolutely yeah yeah and as artistic director what role have you most enjoyed directing or producing um, well, operas, we're busy with one of my favorites of all time at the moment. We on day four of, well, we just did day four today of uh, Le Nozze di Figaro, mm. an absolutely phenomenal opera. I love comedy. Um, it's something that I do well, and I feel very confident in, in directing comedy. So um, I would say that current, every day I have a different favorite ca character today, mm -hmm. my character was Basilio uh, uh, but yesterday my favorite character was the Count so it's very difficult I fall in love with all my characters all the time and it's um, uh, just because also I I love creating very colorful and um, uh, detailed characters so yes. they're all my favorite at one stage or the other even the small ones and it's good to remind audiences of the fact that opera is not just a very serious art form. It's actually very, very humorous as well. 
Absolutely, especially operas like uh, by Mozart, um, especially that combination Mozart and the librettist um, Da Ponte. Mm. I mean, it, it's hilarious, even though it was written at the end of the 1700s. How crazy is that? It's still, <laughs> still relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I suppose that leads on to the next um, question in terms of relevance, which is La Boheme. You mm -hmm. recently heard it in the Eastern Cape. And as you know, I, I graduated from Rhodes University there. So that's a neck of the woods that I've spent a great deal of time in, four years of my life as a student. And so I'd like to know what inspired that choice, particularly going to that those locations and, yeah, why you took the story there. So I, um, I only started at Cape Town Opera as a permanent member, as the artistic director in January this year, but mm. last year. They asked me to direct La Boheme and they had already decided to go to the Eastern Cape on this tour. So Captain Opera gets funding to do two um, national tours every year or let's say regional. So um, they, as a kind of first stab at a tour, they chose the Eastern Cape uh, and the, the tour was basically uh, from, was George... Trebecha, um, PE. Uh, where else did we go? Graaf Reinet and Oudsoorn. So mm. it was a four-part kind of a tour. Uh, this year we're going to Gauteng, um, to Joburg. Uh, and later in the year we're actually going to the Northern Cape. We're going to, well, Northern Cape and Freestad, I suppose. Bloemfontein, Kimberley and um, uh, Richmond, potentially. So, so we choose a like a route that is drivable because we have to travel with a truck with a yeah, um, props and sonography. Well, yeah, um, with quite quite big sets and things. Well, not big, but it's. I mean, it's a it's a a, a, a biggish truck, um, and we have to obviously get there. And uh, in scheduling it, they they work. The producer works out meticulously how long it will take to travel because uh, you have air travel and ground travel, obviously. So it's a uh, it around the venues that we find that are suitable, which is already not a lot, we then mm. figure out whether the route will work. Um, so so now with planning these one, the, the two this year, I saw how it works to to figure this out. So, um, yeah, I just, I come, come up with a region and then my incredible team goes and they find fabulous spaces for us to perform in. And that's, that's, uh, that's I suppose, how the Eastern Cape one also came about. Yeah. And what was the audience's response um, to those performances? It was incredible. I mean, everywhere we went, um, it was always packed. It was always just people either in tears or coming to hug us afterwards, like lots of standing ovations. It was, it was absolutely incredible to take opera to regions that don't see, see these kind of productions often. Um, yes. And it was also really cool to see what beautiful theatres are out there in South Africa. And this is something that I've always been really passionate about, is to to go to theatres um, around South Africa. Um, I mean, I've I've even had very successful operas done in Nelspreit and Ermelua, where you don't think that they would have big enough houses. But, you know, um, in in Ermelua, which is quite a small um little dorpy uh, we had 1500 people come through the doors and you know um, it, it was it, 
same in Nalspreit, in fact, also 1,500 people. Um, and uh, it, for me, the highlight of the Eastern Cape tour was when we did the performance in Graaf Reinet in a tiny little theater. I think it was a 300-seater, um, if even 300, it might have been smaller. But uh, we had two or three performances and people literally came in evening dresses and furs and velvet and tuxedos. Uh, wow. And it was just this beautiful, it was a beautiful evening and uh, it's almost like a little dust road that leads to the theater. And you could just see these people walking with their little handbags to the to this beautiful old little theater. And it was so magical. I mean... People just came with such warmth and, uh, yeah, everyone left happy and uh, we, it was a very, very joyful experience. Yeah. I mean, it, it's great that you guys have used theatres that, you know, otherwise aren't used in the way that they're meant to be. Mm. Um, and, I mean, I suppose with South Africa, we always talk about Cape Town Opera Company as, you know, our primary opera company that is still, you know, operational which is very sad, but it's a good reminder that there are other places that can host operas and therefore possibly um, make room for other opera companies to pop up so that more people pursue this art form. Um, Absolutely. Where they are at and, and bring art and the relevance of opera now to the people in their immediate space and location. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I have to also say that I think wherever we've gone so last year on tour even though i wasn't part of the cape town opera team but i was the director um we ended up um really fixing up i mean the the the, the kind of um technical team ended up really fixing up one of the theaters because it was slightly unsafe um <laughs> went and fixed things and um put safety signs up and we ended up, I mean, I, I painted the proscenium arch. We just got a lot of black paint and painted it black and polyfillered and, you know, um, untacked things that were falling off. And we, we really left the place in better nick than, than it was before, which was quite cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Sure. So what would you like? Back to me. It's back to you. It's your turn. <laughs> right. Let's see. Right. You're known for taking an, an old age story and framing it in a current, unique context metaphor. Machtelian uh, style. <laughs> Talk to us about uh, Bon Appetit. Ah, Bon Appetit. That was really cool. So, um, obviously, post COVID, well, not post COVID, I suppose, but post the fourth wave. Um, things were quite difficult and um, I walked into this new job where I had to program an entire year, but we were already in the year. <laughs> mm. Very interesting, <laughs> which is definitely not the way one should be doing it, but that's just how the cookie crumbled. Um, and I had to come up with some very quick productions. Um, and as I really love site-specific works, I... Um, uh, we we had a meeting about another potential production um, in at the Vineyard Hotel, and I, I said to my one colleague that this restaurant is really amazing. I want to do a show here, 
And so we decided to do a kind of culinary operatic experience in the show kitchen. And I put together a program of, of five pieces that have to do with food. And the kind of central piece was Bon Appetit by Lee Hoibi. Um, and it's uh, about the famous um, chocolate cake re recipe, um, uh, La Chocolat Léminence Brune uh, mm -hmm. by a child. Um, and it's basically just her baking a cake for, for half an hour. It's a really, really brilliant little chamber opera. And um, the, the evening kind of centered around that. And then we did um, some extracts from other um, pieces like uh, the omelette quartet from uh, uh, the um, Miracle Do Doctor by Bizet and uh, yeah, some other, the coffee cantata by Bach and, and so on. So it was a fun, fun evening with a five course menu. In That's a very clever concept. It was no i haven't so my fiance is a chef so matthew <laughs> is saying hint hint nudge nudge <laughs> food and music definitely go to together but i mean also in the time of covid seeing as hospitality and the performing arts were both so hard hit it was great that you you championed both of those spaces simultaneously yeah, it was good. It was good for, for all of us. And it's a, we'll definitely be doing a lot more of those. It seems like food and food and opera goes together very well. Oh, yes. I was given a gift by um, Lara Kirsten. She's a, a pianist and performance poet. And it's uh, Wine and Opera. And it's a beautifully illustrated book um, about a particular illustrator who dedicated most of his life to creating the most magnificent decorated wine labels for opera houses that were themed according to each opera that was being presented wow. at the time. They are magnificent. That's amazing. And food and wine and, and food and opera definitely go together. That's wonderful. Yeah. Right. So teaching, performing and the digital age. This has been obviously a big learning curve, this whole COVID, COVID time for a lot of teachers. And, and a lot of performers to try and bring their art to people in a very challenging time when people were, were locked down and also contending with audiences who potentially absorbed it passively rather than recognizing that it's a craft and it's an art form um, and it's something that is actually some people's bread and butter. So I know that Bibliotheque Productions helped many artists um, keep creative and earn something from their work in the time of COVID. And it was a privilege to be your PA for that and to see those, <laughs> all those, um, those magnificent performances that came through. How do you feel, having gone through that experience and, and, and many experiences, how do you feel government, and this is quite a deep question, government has succeeded but also failed in supporting artists during this time? And the same goes for arts organizations. I might give you an answer that um, you won't expect. Um, I have always thought that as artists, we shouldn't rely on government funding at all mm. because you never know what you get um, and you don't know what happens with the money. Um, mm. But I do think that um, especially the National Arts Council did uh, step up their game whether there was money embezzled or not 
uh, they did actually open up new tranches of funding which wasn't available prior. And mm. I know of a whole lot of artists who got help in that period. So, so there I must commend them. I know that there are many different opinions about this. Um, and I don't want to go into too deep a conversation. Uh, yeah. But I myself also got funding for a digital project, which was really, really a lifeline for a lot of artists. I was able to, with the not a lot of money that I got, um, at least provide an opportunity uh, to to some artists. So, you know, it's uh, I think it's a double-edged sword, but uh, yeah, that's th that's it. I think we should. Uh, always um, look for more areas of funding and um, try to fund, uh, try to find uh, kind of funding outside of government because um, I just yeah. think a better idea. I mean, this interview in itself is partially funded by Concerts SA. Um, and I was lucky in 2020, I received funding from them for the very first branch of Herstory. And now we're on Herstory 3.0. And it's because of organizations like that. And they also, Concerts SA reached out to the Norwegian Arts Embassy and International Cultural Consulting. And, you know, then it means that we've got some international funds that came through to, to make this kind of thing possible. But I 100% agree with you that you have to have multiple streams of income and security. Mm. Um, it's the age-old adage of don't put all your eggs in one basket because Absolutely. you will become unstuck. Absolutely. Um, on that point, Emma, this hmm. is a question directed at you. Um, just so um, listeners here, as well as listeners, platforms once published, hmm. uh, have an understanding. Do you think you can give an an overview of of the her story? Hmm. Absolutely. So. Herstory arose for me out of a a passion. This is um, this is a question I'll be asking Magdalene just now. But my point, my main point of advocating as a, an educator, a performer, and a teacher is to do with championing women in music, and in all senses of the word. So not just performers, but directors, conductors, producers. Um, my research as an honors student at Rhodes University taught me that. They're, they are underrepresented and underperformed and um, not, they weren't historically afforded the same opportunities as their male counterparts were. And it's not to say that their male counterparts aren't talented and didn't create magnificent works, but there has been historical sexism and some would argue there still is um, gender bias in, in the music industry in all, in, all, in all areas. And so I chose to create a e-concert documentary that I keep adding to and I keep growing and promoting in different spaces that showcases the lives as well as works of female composers, past and present, international and local, and of women in music, um, both past and present. And yeah, that is, that, that is the project um, and, and that's where it's going. We've currently, it's in, in a university and in two schools, they use it as a teaching resource. And it's reached many members of the public. We're going to be taking it to very interesting spaces. So Matthew and I have some very interesting venues to screen it at um, up our sleeves. So watch this space. What is your biggest point for advocating and why? 
Um, for me, uh, the most kind of essential thing that I'm trying to get across is the importance of early childhood education in the musical realm, um, which has very much to do with clever classical kids and how we planning on rolling that out to school, busy rolling it out to schools. So, um, that's got a lot to do with, um, the first, the first thousand days of a child's kind of brain development and um, the the impact that classical music and movement um, has on on a child at a very young age. So kind of the first thing and the second thing is living sustainably, which is kind of just my 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 all time thing that I try to achieve and instill in my children and. You know, uh, yeah. Basically, the course is uh, more for the teachers. So the the course is for the teachers to be able to bring music back into the classroom. So it's giving them a tool, which is a very, very easy tool that they can just spend half an hour each morning or per week um, on on music and singing and moving. Um, and uh, part of the part of the um, business model is that each privileged school that buys the license to this program then gives basically a license to an underprivileged school so that thereby kind of giving you know just kind of sharing the love and make the circle bigger describe your relationship to directing what made you choose this line of work passion Given your diverse musical background, who is or are your biggest mentors in and outside this realm? Yeah, so when I was studying opera um, at UCT, I had a, a lecturer. He was the, the head of the opera school, um, Professor Angela Gabato. Um, and um, because I had been doing a lot of languages before going to UCT and because I was in pro arte so I did harmony and theory and all of those things quite a quite a high level I got a little bit bored with <laughs> with the opera course um, and so I went to him and said I I want to rather just be a director how can I how, how can I become a director and um, he said to me you can't study to be a, an opera director you have to just do what you're doing, read a lot, and start small. And so that's kind of what I did. I just kept investing in my languages. I kept investing in reading and um, knowing a lot about uh, history and politics and, um, you know, the social economic statuses of different groups and all of that um, and cultures and um, became very interested in that kind of thing. And... Um, just kind of slowly, slowly over the years, built up my toolbox that I needed uh, as a director. And uh, eventually I found my style that I enjoy doing. Um, not not to say that I'm, I'm binding myself by my style, but uh, I kind of, I found what I'm good at and what I'm maybe less good at or what I need work on. And, um, and that's, that's how it went, basically. It was the best advice. I saw Professor Gabato two or so weeks ago, and I, I told him it was the best advice he could have given me. Uh, yeah.
Let's talk barriers. If you're comfortable talking to us about this, and you can go into as much or as little detail as you feel comfortable, have you faced barriers to progress as a young woman, mother, insert other barriers, in the industry? How do you feel these have or can be bridged? So it's always been very interesting to me that the opera world, um, especially in South Africa, is very dom male dominated. And um, that's something that uh, is slowly changing, which is really exciting. Um, I mean, the fact that we have very few female conductors, very few um, female operatic directors, uh, and musical directors in the country um, is, I wouldn't say problematic, but uh, there's definitely scope for, for, for people to fill those roles, for people of, um, you know, different genders and um, uh, walks of life to, to fill the roles. Um, that being said, I've never really thought that, you know, I've been discriminated against because I'm a, a woman. Um, I've definitely been discriminated against because I've been, because I was young. Um, and it's very nice to not be so young anymore and, um, you know, be kind of uh, given the, the time of day. Uh, I feel that South Africa um, on the whole, is actually in a really good place at the moment um, in terms of the operatic industry and where, where we're going. It can be tiring fighting for airspace. How does it feel to have got this far, Magdalene? Describe three career highlights and why they are significant for you. I suppose it is tiring to to fight for the airspace, but um, that's kind of part of what we have to do. And if you want to be a freelance artist, that's very much much um, what is asked of you. That's that is the career. Um, you have to have uh, extreme tenacity and um, extreme creativity in how you approach your career, and you have to be uh, diverse um, and you have to be able to land on your feet and just kind of think out the box when something like COVID hits you have to just go okay you know what life has thrown me a really really hard curve ball but I have to get past it in some way um, in terms of career highlights I would say that on many different levels I've had different highlights I've had the privilege of working with incredible conductors. Um, for me, a highlight was working with someone like Gerard Korsten um, as, a, as a young musician and just kind of breathing in his absolute mastery of, of conducting and his genial knowledge of the music that we were performing. That, that was really cool. Um, and also working with um, Working with fabulous directors as a performer has been really great. Uh, working on international um, productions has been wonderful. Obviously, doing a, a role like Christine in Phantom of the Opera was um, not necessarily for me a bucket list, but it was an incredible 
opportunity and learning curve and working with that caliber of uh, artists and creative team was was just um, really, really wonderful and quite an eye opener. Um, gosh, and the third one, I suppose, um, yeah, directing my own productions and kind of coming up with concepts. Uh, I'm busy with Lenore City Figaro at the moment, which I think is quite out the box, where we take the period kind of um, inspiration and turn it upside down and make it quite modern. Um, so that for me is is a highlight that I'm finally in a, at a stage in my career where, where I get taken seriously enough that I can say um, what my vision is and that can go onto the stage. That's That's really cool. How do you avoid burnout or cope with disappointment in your professional goals? And how do you take the time to pat yourself on the back before rushing on to the next thing with such a hectic schedule? So, yeah, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very high energy person. So for me, I just run on all cylinders um, until my body says, halt <laughs> which happens you know every now and again um it actually happened recently where i just got sick and i just had to spend a day in bed because my body was just tired um but i i tend to to not dwell on criticism i tend to be um very kind of forward focused i don't really um you know uh, dwell on on people's opinions of what I do. Uh, I've grown an incredibly thick skin over the years and um, I just move forward. I also don't really pat myself on the back much. I don't see the point in that. I I always think that one learns with the next project and um, we are always, always learning as we go. Um, you never know everything. Um, that's quite an important thing for me to to always kind of keep in mind is that um, you're never the perfect musician or the perfect director or the perfect producer or you, you're always just learning. Um, and in, I think in, in, in that outlook, I've taken a lot of pressure off myself. Um, but yeah, burnout is a real thing. And um, I really try to look after my body. I do lots of yoga. I, I eat really healthily. I... I really, I'm really into like, you know, healthy stuff and a healthy inside. <laughs> and um, I, f I find it fun to live in a way that's, you know, um, I can balance um, my work with with how, how I live. Uh, I, for instance, I try not to drink too much coffee. Um, I drink lots of water. I try to sleep lots um, when it's possible. And um, I mean, obviously with being a mother, sleep is not always, you know, possible, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of, I suppose, just part of the, the time of, of, it's my chapter at the moment. Where is the next goal for you? Wow, the next goal, I mean, um, 
I would like to take my directing career more international. Um, that's kind of the only thing that I really um, see outside of South Africa because I, at the moment I have my dream job. So hopefully I have this job for, for a while um, because honestly, I don't want to be doing anything other than what I'm doing at the moment. If you had to describe the world as a color, what would it be and why? I would have to quote my three-year-old daughter on that one. And that is a rainbow with glitter or something like that. I don't know, something fabulous and shiny and sparkly and wonderful um that's just kind of how i see the world and i i choose to look at the world in a positive light and to see the beauty um and for me it's it's always finding the next beautiful amazing thing to to look at and feel and experience Adding on to our unique following into fun questions, this is a weird one, but it's one Matthew asked me for his podcast when he interviewed me, and I think it's thought-provoking. So, what piece or composer or singer would you want played at your funeral, and why? Gosh, that's a really hectic question. Um, well, first of all, I don't want a funeral. Um, <laughs> I... I would like for people to have a massive party um, in my name and throw my ashes into the ocean. Um, my husband knows all of this. Uh, and I want my body to be completely kind of, um, you know, um, recycled as far as possible. That's just an aside. Um, but yeah, what music? Something that people can dance to, something that people can sing to nothing too somber. I don't have anything specific in mind, but just like a long, fabulous party. Women in education on stage and in music directorship, conducting and leadership. Do you agree with me that they are nowhere near visible nor supported enough to equal gender equality? Or does it depend entirely on the context of the place? I mean, I think it depends on context because I know too many amazing women in very powerful roles in the arts sector in South Africa to to say that it's not equal. Um, I suppose when you look at numbers, then yes, there are, are lots of men in, in powerful positions, but um, I don't know. I, I, I choose not to look at things in that way. Um, I, I suppose I, I want to see each individual as, um, as that, just as an individual. And if you're the right person for the job, then you should be doing it. Um, having said that, I, I'm always encouraging young, um, females to, to pursue careers in, in, 
you know, arts administration, in education, in in um, performance uh, or creative roles, in technical roles, uh, just because I am a female. So for me, my my story is is that from a female angle. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. That's a really hard question. <laughs> Do you feel that the live element will never be entirely replaced by AI, that the arts are a future-proof career choice for the next generation of the young and passionate? I don't think that digital or artificial intelligence or virtual reality or anything can ever come close to walking into a theatre and experiencing first-hand live opera. I mean, um, obviously I'm, I'm talking from a, an opera and perhaps musical theater perspective, um, but I think COVID showed us very, very clearly that, that a screen can never replace the real thing. Um, and I think the fact that an art form like opera has survived for 400 plus years, um, I think that's a huge indicator that it's it's not going to go anywhere. And if you look at the way that it's being kind of turned upside down and how innovative producers and directors and, um, you know, companies are at the moment with maybe, um, you know, certain restrictions or uh, budget constraints or uh, audience constraints, uh, I, I just think that it's live um, theatre or live performance or live music uh, is such a, an intrinsic part of society and it has been for thousands of years. I mean, if you look at Asian culture and, uh, you know, the Greeks and um, kind of everything that's happened in history around the globe, it's just so obvious that to to put word and music um into a kind of a i almost want to say superficial form and re enacting that for a live audience is it's just never going to go away it will just always be relevant that's definitely what i think